into verse 11, which we ended um, last week, but let's rewind into that just for context sake. Um, Paul, as you know, he was um, arrested by the uh, Romans in Jerusalem uh, because of, he was being basically attacked by um, the Jews in the area um, in Jerusalem around the temple and the Sanhedrin, Sanhedrin um, wanted to try him. And so... Um, and so it came to the commander's attention that he was a Roman citizen and that he needed a fair trial. You know, if you're not a citizen, you don't get a fair trial. <laughs> but if you're a citizen, you get one. And I think it's kind of odd, but so much for human rights back then. But here we see Paul now. He's, he's, he's in custody with the commander there in, in, in Rome or in Jerusalem, the Roman, you know, um, commander. Uh, and here we see God speaking to, to Paul. And I, I, I want to go off this because this is important. God says to Paul, take courage. Take courage. Now, you see, I mean, Paul was brave. We already know. We already talked about that. I mean, he did some pretty brave, courageous things in his life. You know, he, he stood face to face to death a lot in his ministry. And even when he was warned by the Spirit, don't go to Jerusalem because you'll be, you know, arrested. And possibly even die. He was brave. He said, "It's fine if that's what God wants. I'm cool with it." You know, he he, he understood that God was sovereign. You know, he, he was ultimately in charge. Um, so he went to Jerusalem with this. But when you're in, you see, it's one thing to have the theoretical courage. Yes, God's in charge. He's sovereign. I'm cool with that. But when you're in the thick of it, there's a difference. You know, you know what I'm saying there's a difference between theoretical courage and then practical courage. There's a difference between the understanding of, yes, putting, you know, putting the variables together. If God, then therefore. You know, that, that's one thing. But when you're in it, when you're in the thick of it, when you're, when you're standing, when you're looking at opposition face to face, it's hard. It's, it's a different situation altogether. And that's why I think God visited Paul. And when he visited Paul, he said, take courage. I understand that theoretically you get it. Because you've, you've written a lot about it, and you will continue to write about it. And, you've, you know, we, and, and God knows Paul's heart, that he gets the details. But now he, he needs to be just kind of, I don't know, get a, a big God cuddle, if you will. He needs to have that experience by God and say, here, do know that I'm with you. And do know, you know, I know you know it, but know it. You really feel it, really embrace that I'm with you. Take courage. As you have... Testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also go to Rome. And this, of course, is Paul's heart. And this is why I started to, you'll start to see my slides will say the road to Rome. Because Paul wanted to go to Rome. And God's answering his, his prayers, his desire to go to Rome. It's not in the most ideal circumstance, but he will be going to Rome to testify. And have great opportunity to testify in front of a lot of people in Rome. In front of the governors and the kings and the emperor himself, the Caesar, you know. I mean, this is, this is going to be a great opportunity for Paul. So then the next morning, verse 12, some Jews formed a conspiracy 
And that's why I named this slide a conspiracy. How do you think this will work for them? If God is with Paul, no conspiracy, no accusation, no attempt upon his life will be successful. Unless God, you know, deems it to be. But we, God just said, don't, don't be worried. Take courage. I'm going to get you to Rome. So this conspiracy is, is pointless. If anything, it pushes Paul to Rome. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So here's this conspiracy. And, and look at the drama in this conspiracy. I laughed when I read this. Okay, so there's these people. Okay, they formed this conspiracy and they bound themselves. How do you bind yourself? I don't know. Well, we'll find out. With an oath. Okay, so they made this oath. Now look at this oath, guys. Not to eat or drink until they've killed Paul. Okay, just stop and pause. Paul stays alive for many years after this. Okay, think about this. Think about the implications here. Did they, did they go hungry? Did they, they, not, to, not, not just to, not to eat, but not to eat, not to drink. Severe dehydration and the complications behind that. I mean, think about what happened here. Do you think they really follow through on this? I love the drama. Anyways, more than 40 men were involved with this plot. 40 men dead from death and dehydration because Paul's alive. Do you think that really happened? Or do you think they kind of, it's like a diet, you know, when you start at the beginning of the year. I, I will make an oath this day on January the 1st that I will lose X amount of pounds or I will do this amount of, of you know what I'm saying. And then come February. Well, my oath wasn't really binding per se. I wonder what that's happened. I can see these guys like, like I don't know, a week from now. Well, we didn't kill Paul successfully, still alive. But when we said we were going to make this, 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 <laughs> this binding oath, we weren't really being serious about it. I mean, come on, we have to eat something. I mean, it's Mother's Day. We need to go eat something for Mother's Day, right? Uh, I forget that. Yeah, let's, let's just break the bond. But anyways, for, anyways, moving on. So there's 40 men involved with this. First 14, they went to the chief priests and the elders and said, we have taken a solemn oath. So that's an oath. It's a solemn oath. Not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin uh, petition the commander to bring him before you at the pretext of wanting more accurate information about his case. We are ready to kill him before he gets here. That's loving. This is so loving. Next slide. So here's this oath, this solemn oath not to eat or drink until Paul is dead. And then you have this little spoiled brat here. I didn't even know this guy existed. I went to Bible college. I've studied the Bible. I've taught the Bible consistently for many years. I didn't even know Paul had a nephew. And he was a big part of this plan. And that's the reason why I named this slide. God uses the small people too. And it reminds me of like Francis Schaeffer. Very, very much so in keeping with his, his, his writings, his theories, you know. That there, and he wrote consistently that there is no little people in God's kingdom. There are no little people. And that's awesome. And I think that's something that needs to be said, especially in context to the Western 21st century way of thinking. Because we are celebrity deaf. Oh, well, you got the celebrities, you got the big people, you know, the, 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 those, are, those are the people that do the things, and we just don't. We just get on with it. Or we watch them, and we get fat. Okay, but we don't do what celebrities do, because the celebrities are celebrities. They're big people. And so I think... And that's very much a Western mentality. You got the doers and you got the watchers. The thing is, in God's kingdom, I don't think that's the case. I think in God's kingdom, we're all doers. We're all, there's no, I mean, there's a place for every single one of us, even little guys like Paul's nephew. 
<coughs> so let's see how Paul's little nephew helps the situation to progress, to get Paul moving to Rome. In verse 16, But when the son of Paul's sister heard of this plot, he went into the barracks and told Paul. I didn't even know Paul had a sister. I'm glad I read Acts 23:16. Did you guys know that he had a sister and he had a nephew? I didn't. Well, that's cool, you know? I mean, right now, Paul's sister and her son are hanging out with Paul in heaven saying, remember that? Remember how we got you out of Jerusalem because you know, we heard the rumors? And, you know, I mean, how cool is that to know that you're a part of God's plan? No little people. But anyways, verse 17. So Paul called one of the centurions and said, this young man, or take this young man, rather, to the commander. He has something to tell him. So he took him to the commander. The centurion said, Paul, the prisoner sent for me and asked me to bring you this young man to you because he has something to tell you. The commander took the young man by the hand, drew him aside and asked, what is it you want to tell me? He said, some Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about him. Don't give it to them, because more than 40 of them are waiting in ambush for him. They have taken an oath not to eat or drink until they have killed him. They are already now waiting for your consent to the request. What amazes me, now bear in mind, this is Luke retelling the story. And Luke is a bear for details. And, and I don't know if he's being, how accurate he is in, in, in testifying the accuracy of the details of Paul's nephew, but I'm telling you, he, he, I like how detail-oriented he is. I mean, when, I think, when you think of a young person, young man, you think of scattered and just random, you know, like, oh, whatever. Come on, get your story straight, son. But he was very articulate. And I, and I don't know if this is Luke because he was articulate and he was just retelling the story, or if he was being articulate in the situation and that the young fella. And when I think of a young fella, I'm thinking of like someone like Lewis's age, a young guy. He's probably was nervous. What? I'm standing before a great commander of a, of a Roman army. Oh, getting scared. But he was brave. He was composed. I don't know. I think that's, that's cool. And see that God was actually with even that young fellow. God was with Paul. God was also with Paul's nephew, that young fellow, to give him the, the courage to stand before the big scary man <laughs> and talk to him in a very articulate way. The commander dismissed the young man with his warning. Don't tell anyone that you've reported this to me. Next slide. So here we are, the road to Rome. Paul is first taken to Caesarea. In Acts 23, 23, it says, Then he called two of his interions and ordered them, Get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at nine tonight. Provide horses for Paul so that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. He wrote a letter as follows. Claudius Lysias to his excellency, Governor Felix. So this is Claudius, the commander, writing a letter to the governor. So his higher up, a guy to, who's official, who can make decisions to either release Paul or to keep him in prison. So the matter is going to go to Governor Felix, who is in charge of the region. And he says in the letter, this man, in verse 27, was seized by the Jews and they were about to kill him. But I came with my troops and rescued him, for I, have, I had learned that he was a Roman citizen. I wanted to know why they were accusing him, so I brought him to the Sanhedrin. I found that the accusations had to do with questions about their law. 
But there was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. And that's important to know because I think the big problem here is we've got a lot of political hoopla going around without any genuine accusation. No genuine charge against Paul. And this is actually, believe it or not, causes Paul more problem because they don't know what to do with them. Because they don't want to cause, they don't want to have, give reason for another outbreak in Jerusalem. Especially Felix, the governor, because he's responsible. And if, he, and if there's big problems in Jerusalem, it's a big problem for him. And he'll have to answer it to his authority, the king of the area, or the Caesar himself. So there's no accusation, there's no charge, but he was basically detained. Probably for his own benefit as well as, you know, to calm the, the region. So in verse 30, I was informed of a plot to be carried against this man, and I sent him to you at once. I also ordered his accusers to present you their case against him. So again, you find out what's wrong, <laughs> Felix, the governor. Next slide. So here we see the trial before Felix the Gov. You find out what the problem is. You find out what this guy did wrong. So Felix is going to try to get some concrete accusations. What is the case against Paul? And we'll find three things that they'll say. Three things that are baloney. And Paul will stand up and he will make an account for himself. And there's going to be no... Um, cross-examination. There's going to be no response to Paul's claims because there's going to be no, there is no one to stand up. All it is is just hearsay. We just don't like them. But you can't take someone to, to, to court because you don't like them. But that's the problem. They don't like Paul. They don't like what he's done. They don't like what he's achieved. They don't like what he's about. But you can't say that. You have to come up with something a little bit more official. And so their official charges are genuinely ridiculous. So going on in verse 31, so the soldiers carry out their orders, took Paul with them during the night and brought him as far as Antipatrius. The next day they left the cavalry to go with him while they returned to the barracks. When the cavalry arrived in Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and handed Paul over to him. The governor read this letter and asked what province he was from, learning that he was from um, Cilicia. He said, I will hear your case when your accusers get here. Then he ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace. In the next chapter, in verse 1, five days later, the high priest Ananias, yes, hothead, went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullius. Ooh, we got a, a Greek lawyer here. Hmm, let's see how this works out for them. And they brought their charge against Paul before the governor. When Paul was called in, Tertullius presented his case before Felix. And he says this, We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you. Oh, good flattery. Always start with flattery, of course. And your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. So kill Paul. Because it's, in doing so, you keep the place calm. You see what he's doing here? You don't want riots. You don't want upheaval because you'll get in trouble. So if you just get rid of Paul for us, We'll be calm. It's kind of blackmail, isn't it? It's basically what's going on here. Don't forget, long period of peace. You want to keep the peace? That's blackmail. Anyways, everywhere, in every way, <clears throat> most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. But in order not to worry you further, 
I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. Next slide. And here we finally get to the accusations at hand. In verse 5, we have found this man to be a troublemaker. Okay, in what way? Stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. Paul, did you do this? Stirring up riots among the Jews. That's the first accusation. I put a list here. The truth about Paul. Number one, was he stirring up riots? Or was he going around sharing the good news about Jesus? I think we've read the story and we know what he was doing. Riots tend to appear, but that's just Satan causing trouble because Satan doesn't want the good news to be preached around the world. Paul's intention was to stir up trouble. Paul's intention was to give people the good news. That's a good thing. That's a wonderful thing. But in order to make it sound like a legitimate case, you can't say, oh, he was teaching people the good news about Jesus. And what's the problem? So you have to say, well, but the consequence of him doing that was that there was rights. It wasn't Paul's intention. It wasn't Paul's desires. But, but everywhere he went, people would follow him. And, it was, and it's a move of Satan. Because he wanted to squash, he wanted to discourage Paul. He wanted to squash Paul and his mission. And so he allowed these rights to come about and problem, troublemakers to follow him about and, and cause problems. And basically beat Paul up. <laughs> throwing him around, beating him around, stoning him, whipping him, all these troubles. So, I mean, Paul would rather not have these things, thank you very much. But yet, they have to twist it. Oh, but he's a troublemaker. He's stirring up trouble around the whole world. First accusation, which is false. He is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect. And there's some truth to this, but it's also very cleverly phrased to, to make him look like a bad guy. Oh, he's a ringleader. A ringleader? A ringleader is a person, in, in, in plain English, who initiates or leads an illicit or illegal activity. Is that sound like what Paul was doing? Was he doing something illicit or illegal, going around telling people the good news? If God was on his side, if God called him and God gave him a message, and he was giving a message, i.e. the good news, there's nothing illegal or illicit about it. It was ordained, approved by God. And that's exactly what I think the truth about Paul is. He wasn't anything a list or legal. He wasn't a ringleader. He was an apostle. He was a messenger sent by God. And of course, their assumption here is that the good news is a lie. And that's the bottom line. They don't like the good news. In their mind, it's a lie. Because they don't like the implications of this good news. That there's no longer any need for the temple. For the, the ceremony, the ritual, the law, the, the harshness that they've, this, that they've carried their whole life historically. Their parents and their grandparents and their great-grandparents. And you know what I'm saying? So they don't like that, that, that now it's easy to see God. It's easy to meet God because God made a way through his son. They don't like that. So their, so their idea, their assumption is that it's a lie, the good news, and therefore all he's doing is causing problems. Third accusation, verse 6. He even tried to desecrate the temple, so he seized him. Did he try to desecrate the temple? No. He went to Jerusalem. He was actually very much so, he was very aware of the traditions and customs of the temple. He was a, an astute student of the Pharisees sect of the Jewish religion. He understood what was required to be ceremonially prepared and clean and right. And he did those things, even as a 
Christian, a, a per, a one of the way. You know, devout follower of Christ, but still he understood the customs of his family, of his fathers. And he actually kept them. He didn't have to. He did. In fact, even when he went to Jerusalem, the, the elders, you remember they said, just do, do your normal ceremonies. Just do it just to keep the peace. And he goes, okay, I'll do it to keep the peace. But he still got in trouble. Did he do it wrong? No, he didn't do it wrong. He did it right. The accusation was that he brought a Gentile into the temple, which he didn't even do that. So you're hanging out with Gentiles. You must be bringing them to the temple. What? That's a false inference. Yes, I'm hanging out with a Gentile, but I didn't bring him to the temple. So did he disagree the temple? No. What he did, he needlessly honored the customs of the past. He didn't have to do it, but he did it anyways. So by examining in verse 8 yourself, you will be able to learn the truth about all these charges. Really? You think that's going to really happen? Well, let's find out. The other Jews joined in the accusations. Yeah, 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 he, uh, he did that. Uh, certainly these things were true. But, but, but notice that no one's going to stand up and say, this is what I've seen. You know, you, that's a witness. That's what a witness does. A witness says, this is what I've seen. This is what I've heard. This is my testimony. They'll say, oh, yeah, 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 he did that. But no one's going to stand up and testify. Um, in the next slides, Jesus told us, and, he, and, he, and it appears in, I think, at least the three um, Gospels, um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, possibly in John. I'm not exactly, I don't think he does, but I'm not sure. But, but I, I've, we've looked at this in Matthew. I think we've looked at it in Luke, but now we're looking at it in Mark, where Jesus talks about, you know, when we find ourselves, you know, like Paul, in a situation where we have to answer for our faith, especially in a very specific situation that Paul is in. I think Mark is very specific in how when we're in these, find ourselves in these situations, like I said, you know, you have the theories about being persecuted, but then you have the practicalities. What, hap- what happens if you actually are in a, in a situation? And the thing is, it's great fear. What if I get so scared that I actually can't speak, articulate, you know, what if I just, because I'm so scared, you know, I need, I need, an, I need someone to represent me, God, in court, you know, and what if no one's willing to represent me? What do I do then? Well, it's Jesus says here in Mark 13 that the Holy Spirit is your advocate. He's your counselor. In verse 9, it says this, you must be on guard. You'll be handed over to local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings and witnesses to them. I mean, this is very much so what we see what's going on with Paul right now. And the gospel must be preached to all the nations. So don't stop preaching the gospel, Paul. And he didn't. And neither should we. Whenever you are interested, or arrested, I'm sorry. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given to you at the time. For it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. And again, that's refreshing and it's good to know that when we find ourselves in a situation where we're like, oh, what if I find myself in a situation where I'm on the, on the, on the, on the, on the bus or I'm running to someone out on the streets and they ask me about my Christianity. Oh, I'm going to say, God, you get all nervous and you get butterflies in your tummy. Maybe I should read some apologetics books and how to witness books and memorize the whole thing. Is that really necessary? It can be helpful. It can be very helpful. 
In fact, I encourage you to do it. But is it necessary? No, it's not necessary. Because the Holy Spirit's with you. And he'll give you the words to say. In fact, probably better than the books. If it's coming from the Holy Spirit, you can be sure it's better than the books. The books can be very helpful. They can be very encouraging. And they can maybe lead you. And the Holy Spirit can use these books to lead you into certain conversations with people. But don't think because you have never read them that you're just qualified. The Holy Spirit is your qualification. The Holy Spirit and his presence with you is what qualifies you to represent him, to be a witness of him and his things. So this is really encouraging words. I hope that Paul took these seriously as he literally stood in court. What do I say? And thing is, Paul's a brilliant guy. I'm sure he had a lot of things he could say. But what if he said too much? What if he said too little? What if he goes on a tangent? What if he goes the... You know what I'm saying? Those thoughts could still easily plague a smart fella as well. But remembering, I'm not going to overthink it. I'm just going to be honest. I'm going to go there and I'm going to let God use me and say what he wants to say through me. So back in Acts 24.10, Paul finally gives an account, a defense for himself. So verse 10, Acts 24, when the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, I know that for a number of years you have been a judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defense. You can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogue or anywhere else in the city. So again, I just came to town 12 days ago. You know that, the people know that, the synagogue know that. You know, there's people who will testify this. Okay, I just came. And I didn't come to cause problems. I didn't come arguing, I didn't come fighting. I actually came to just go to the temple of worship, do my ceremonies. Is there anyone here going to disagree with me? No one stands up, no one disagrees. But that's what happened. So Acquisition 1, was he stirring up riots? Well, he didn't, certainly didn't do it in Jerusalem. So what's the problem? Verse 13, they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. Again, who's going to prove it? Who's going to stand up and say, this is what I've seen. This is how Paul has done it. There is no one. There is no evidence against Paul to prove accusation one, two, or three. Next slide. Verse 14, however, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. So yeah, true. Call the way. Call this Christianity, if you will, a sect. Yeah, that's fine. But you know what? I worship the same God. I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of this sect called the way. And to that, though, again, I'm, I'm, the word ringleader still doesn't do justice to what Paul was. He wasn't a ringleader. He was a messenger. He was an apostle. But his defense here stands on a personal belief that the law and the prophets and their fulfillment is in the Messiah. Okay? I believe in the law. I believe in the Old Testament. I believe in Moses. I believe in Isaiah and Daniel and all the Old Testament prophets. I believe in all that, Paul says. I believe in it. And call us a sect, if you will. But we believe that Jesus is that Messiah that we're waiting for. And he believes that what he believes is fulfilled in the very law and customs that they are protecting and cherishing. In fact, Romans, he says, he declares in Romans, he, he wrote this later on. He says in Romans 8, 3, for what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened 
by the flesh. God did by setting his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that, get this, the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So Paul acknowledges the law, but he also acknowledges the burden of the law. The law condemns and we cannot fulfill, we cannot complete the law in the flesh. We need help. That help is the Messiah, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Because of his offering, his sin offering, because he was condemned in the flesh, because he paid the price of the law, we can be righteous because the righteous requirements of the law can be met. And so for Paul, it's not just a fleshly thing, a doing or don't doing thing. For him, it's a deeply spiritual thing, and it was fulfilled. It was completed on the cross. So Paul has no problem. In fact, if anything, arguably, Paul is more faithful and more of a believer of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, than even these guys, because he was prepared to see the fulfillment of these things in the Messiah. He is open to it. He has seen it. He believes it. So he says, I believe everything that is in accordance with the law and as written in the prophets. And I have the same hope in God as these men themselves, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive away to keep my conscience clear before God and man. Next slide. We're almost there. So what is he doing in Jerusalem then? What is he doing in Jerusalem? Verse 17. After an absence of several years, and this is him traveling and doing his missions and whatnot, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. Again, was he in Jerusalem to cause trouble? To cause riots and to, you know what I'm saying? These things that they're accusing him of? No, what was Paul doing in Jerusalem? He actually came, and we know this, because we've seen this all through the Acts, and he mentions it in the letters how, how the church in Jerusalem was struggling economically. And so the churches, the richer churches, all through, you know, like specifically in Asia Minor, you know, the, the lived in rich commerce areas and cities. You know, they had a lot. They wanted to help their brothers and sisters. And so they sent Paul with gifts to go to Jerusalem to help out their... It's a very loving and compassionate thing Paul's doing here. Why is it that they didn't mention this? Oh, but by the way, just to give Paul some credit, you know, he did come to bring gifts to, to people who are suffering in Jerusalem. They didn't bring that up. But that's what Paul was actually doing. There was a part of it where it was ceremonial. Paul did like to go to Jerusalem to finish his missions. We know that. But also he came to, to, to bless the people of Jerusalem. To care for them. And he even said, verse 18, I've been speaking of the temple and me desecrating it. I was ceremonial clean. I didn't do anything wrong. When they found me in the temple courts doing this, there was no crowd with me. Okay, so again, there's, you need a crowd to have a riot. Didn't have one, just me, worshiping God. Nor was I involved in any disturbance. But there are some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here before you and bring charges if they have anything against me. Okay, you're saying I caused problems, injury or something. Where is my accusers? You say that I caused problems all through Asia Minor, all through the known world. 
Where's my accusers? They ought to be here if that were the case. Where are there? There is none. So verse 20, are these things, are, the, are these who are here should state what crime they found me in when I stood before the Sanhedrin. So again, no one in Asia, no one in Israel that can bring an accusation. Except for one thing, and Paul's being honest here, is one thing I did say. I shouted as I stood the presence of the Sanhedrin. And this is what he shouted. It is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial for you today. So theological issues, which, of course, the Gov, Felix, doesn't care about. You can take your religious squabble somewhere else. If he's causing, you know, civil or, you know, some kind of legal, you know, problems that as a governor, I could try. But there's no problems here. There's, there's no legal if you're going to swallow your philosophy or your theology, then go back to where you came from and squabble about that. There's places for that. But that's not Felix's issue here. And he's being honest. Listen, I believe in the resurrection. I believe in the hope of the resurrection. And, and that's what, what, what fire kicked him off back in the Sanhedrin, if you remember, from last week. But at this point, because we are over, like I said, next slide, like I said, and... And I knew we were going to, there's a lot to deal with here. So we're going to conclude at this point. So keep your minds and what we're talking about. We're going to talk more about it next week. And um, hopefully, again, draw out some more application as we see Paul standing before this governor, Felix, who's going to end up disappearing and forgetting about Paul. But there's going to be another governor come up. Uh, Festus, I think, or Festus or something like that. And then he's going to try to deal with Paul, and then eventually they're going to send him to, to uh, Rome. And then you know, there's some interesting stories of Paul being shipwrecked and being bitten by serpents and stuff like that. Some fun stuff is going to happen. But um, I guess today, if we were to like want to hang our hat on some kind of application, there's definitely that, what I got from this is, is specifically that young fella, you know, um, you know, Paul's nephew. I mean, I think it's important to really think about that, guys. It's really, really important to remember that there is no little people in God's kingdom. we got to stop looking out or, or looking up to other people to do and to be the people. You know, oh, that's the man. That's the woman. You know, they're, they're, they're the ones who do the things. You know, we have a place. Okay, there's no little people. You know, we're all con- con- contributes. We all contribute. And, 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 and I think, again, that celebrity mentality of, well, they're the doers and we're just the watchers can be very dangerous and destructive. Because what if you step out as a little person and God decides to use you? And the next thing you know, he gives you an opportunity. And you're like, oh, that's awesome. Cool, I get experience that. Fun, cool. And that's a good thing. But what if there's more behind that? What if he opens another door and another door in another door. And before you know it, you're at a place you never thought you'd ever be before.
creations of the earth All the angels and the saints sing praise They sing praise and love They sing praise